March 29th of this year, Stuart Hall went for a five-mile walk with his wife, Kelly, in their Atlanta neighborhood. He coughed a lot during the walk. When they got back, he said he felt like he had the flu. Like many people over this last six months, they wondered if he had the coronavirus. So they drove to the hospital. The doctors said to them, you don't have enough symptoms. So they sent him home without a coronavirus test and told him to quarantine for 14 days. Nine days later, on April 7th, he couldn't breathe. And so they rushed back to the hospital. He felt so sick on the way, he wasn't sure he could make it, and they almost stopped at a fire station. When they got to the hospital, they confirmed that he had coronavirus, and they rushed him into the ICU, put him on a ventilator, and put him in a medically induced coma. When Dr. Kakar came out to see Kelly, he told her that Stuart had coronavirus, he'd had a heart attack, his main artery was 100% blocked, and he had congestive heart failure. Kelly asked, what are his chances? The doctor said, I don't give him much hope. The doctor went on to explain that he was a man of faith in Christ, and it was now time to pray. Up to this point, they had told no one except their three children. They didn't want to make their neighbors or friends or church family afraid that Stuart had coronavirus. But at this point, Kelly threw caution to the wind. She asked for prayers for Stuart on every prayer chain and social media site she could think of. The impact of the prayers could be felt immediately. He got better. But then he tanked. And that pattern continued, suggesting possibly the ebbs and flows of people's prayers. On April 20th, six doctors stood around Stuart, scratching their heads. They had tried everything. He was young, mid-40s. On the 23rd, Stuart threw up his ventilator, and he was bleeding internally. Stuart serves as an emblem of our times. Many people have contracted the coronavirus and died. Some have gotten it and then survived. Others have gotten it and had no symptoms. Most of us live in fear of getting it. It's left all of us, whether you're a teenager or in your 90s, single or married, Christian or non-Christian, with a sense of uncertainty. We have a pandemic. To slow the spread of the pandemic, we executed an economic shutdown. When George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis, it led to social unrest, followed by rioting and an uptick in crime. 
Add to that wildfires and a Supreme Court replacement all during an election year. No leaders were trained for leading through times like these. So how do we navigate this uncertainty? If you missed one or two of my first messages, uh, let me bring you up to speed. I've said that no leader has been trained to lead through such difficult times, but to help people through navigating uncertainty, a leader must provide at least four things. First, provide clarity. In the midst of uncertainty, people want certainty. Years ago, John Cavanaugh went to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. One day he said to her, would you please pray for me? She said, what do you want me to pray for you? He said, pray that I might have certainty. She looked at him and said, I have never had certainty. I have had trust. I'll pray that you can trust God. No one knows what the future will bring. So no one can provide certainty. What a leader can provide is the next best thing, clarity. And the clarity I can give you as a pastor is that God is sovereign and he will see us through. He is greater than the pandemic. He's bigger than the wildfires. He knows how to handle the economic shutdown the social unrest and rioting, and he'll see us through no matter who wins the election. You can trust him so you can breathe. Let's just try that. Everybody, breathe out. Second, we present choices. You tell people if you do this, things will probably go better for you. If you do that, things will probably get worse for you. Our counselor in this series is the prophet Jeremiah. He provided the people all four of the things that leaders must provide to navigate uncertainty. Our text today is Jeremiah 9 to 14. If you want to turn to Jeremiah 9 in your Bible, let me put these chapters in their historical context. One thing you need to understand about Jeremiah, Jeremiah is is filled with his prophecies to the people of Judah and other countries around Judah, and then his conversations with God. To find the actual events during the 45 years when he prophesied, you have to look at 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in these chapters. From 697 to 642 BC, Judah was ruled by Manasseh. He was the worst king in their history. He led them into spiritual uh, deprivation. He uh, included prostitution as part of their religious worship and had people offer their sons and daughters on the fire uh, to Moloch in sacrifice. From 640 to 609, his son Josiah ruled Judah. He was the last good king in Judah. He leads the nation in uh, reformation and restores the temple to use. He gets rid of all the idols around the country. But in 609, he doesn't heed God's warning and gets involved in a war between Babylon and Egypt. And he's wounded in battle in Megiddo and taken to Jerusalem where he dies. Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, reigns for three months. Then he's deposed by the king of Egypt. 
and replaced by his brother Jehoiakim. Because of Josiah's defeat, Judah becomes a vassal state of Egypt. During Jehoiakim's 11-year reign, he leads the nation back into idolatry. Many of the prophecies we read in Jeremiah are during this time directed at Jehoiakim and the people during those 11 years. I hope you're using our journals and getting uh, into uh, Jeremiah. Uh, the chapters are not arranged chronologically. We don't know why. Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, does not arrange them chronologically. Uh, for example, in a late chapter, we find Jehoiakim is king, even though he was king right after Josiah. In an early chapter, we find Zedekiah is king, even though he was the last king of Judah. This is not a problem, however, because Jeremiah frequently tells us the exact month and year when he is writing. So if I jump around in the book once in a while, you'll understand. As we begin chapter 9, Jeremiah announces judgment on the people of Judah for sinking back into idolatry. Jeremiah told the people what God had to say. This is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Should I not punish them for this? declares the Lord. Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? There are always consequences to sin. He gave them the choice to return to him or, and do well or be taken into captivity in Babylon. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense. These are all these idols they're worshiping. But they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. Uh, they had a choice to follow God or to worship idols. God is providing us choices today. We can return to God or we can continue to drift from Him. We can choose one of two paths. The choice is ours. Second, a leader navigating uncertain times must display humanity. In times of uh, uncertainty, leaders must display humanity. Jeremiah cries, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. He feels so much for the people. He loves the people so much that he cries for them. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away. He's saying, oh, I wish I had a second home, vacation home, so I could leave and get away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people worshiping false idols. In uncertain times, leaders must admit that they've never gone through something like this. They must empathize with people who have lost their jobs and seen their incomes go down or had a loved one die of COVID or seen their business destroyed or nearly destroyed due to the riots. The fourth thing leaders must provide people is give hope. 
More than anything else, in uncertain times, people are looking for hope. They're hoping that we can get through this and get back to some sense of normalcy. I want to drill down on this fourth thing that leaders must provide in uncertain times. When Stuart Hall went to the Atlanta hospital with coronavirus, he couldn't breathe. He had a heart attack. Uh, his, uh, he had 100% blockage in his main artery. For a few seconds, the heart monitor screen in his uh, room went flat. That's not good when you have a flat line. So when you say you want normalcy, this is not what you're looking for. That's death. What you're looking for is a normal heart monitor with ups and downs. That's the way real life is. It's a series of ups and downs. You have good things happen to you and you have bad things that happen to you. I don't care how good a person you are. You will have bad things happen in your life. How do we grow at putting our hope in God in the midst of the bad things? How do we put our hope in God in the midst of the uncertainty we're facing? Many people lack hope today. Nearly three quarters of Americans say they aren't confident life for our children's generation will be better than it has been for us. That's Dana Milbank in 2014, the Washington Post. A huge plurality of young Americans are more fearful than hopeful about the future. That's Shira Schoenberg at Mass Live. This is before the last election, when everyone assumed Hillary Clinton was going to become president. Suicide rates rising dramatically among some of the most materially prosperous segments of society. That's 2016. That doesn't take into account the significant increase in suicides that states are reporting over the last six months. How do we give people hope in uncertain times? Jeremiah suggests three ways. First, put your hope in God's name. Jeremiah prays, although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Jeremiah understands that the people of Judah sinned, and they deserve to be punished. They ought to be carted off to Babylon. But Jeremiah says, God, were the people you chose to represent you in this world. For your own name's sake... Do not destroy us. He's not praying for his honor. He's not praying for the people of Judah's honor. He's praying for God's honor. He says, what are people going to say, God, if your people are all destroyed? What are they going to say about your name? That's good praying. You pray, you pray God, I don't care about me. But if I get divorced and people know I'm a Christian, what are they going to say about your name? 
They're going to say, you don't make any difference in a marriage. You say, God, if my son or daughter goes off the rails and people know that I'm a Christian, what are they going to say about you? They're going to say Christian faith does not make any difference for a young person today. You can pray the same about our country. God, what if this nation goes down the drain? God, this nation was founded on glorious Christian ideals. God, I know a dispute breaks out every year in this country between church and state. Would our nation be better by curbing religion and becoming more secular? Or would it be better for our nation to return to its religious roots? God, I know our nation has been far from perfect. The way we treated Native Americans was deplorable. The fact that we received 388,000 blacks from Africa and treated them as subhuman slaves was terrible. The moral corruption in our country, as exemplified by the multi-billion dollar pornography industry, is terrible. But when we compare the histories of other nations, God, when we observe the suffering barbarity expressed virtually universally, it's easier to see that, Lord, you have used this country for many great things. It has been a beacon of light, an experiment in democracy. God, you used this nation to stop two world wars and in the process saved millions of lives. God, in the bloodiest war in our country's history, the Civil War, 600,000 Americans died so that slaves could be freed, so that slaves could vote, so that our founding ideals could be realized, that all people are created equal. God, our nation has brought more people out of poverty than any nation in the history of the world. Our country has made medical breakthroughs and develop medicines that have extended people's lives. People's life expectancy, uh, expectancies have nearly doubled. Without America, the world would have fallen to tyranny years ago. So God, for your name's sake, help our country. There's a second way we can give people hope. Put your hope in God's promises. Jeremiah prays, have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come for a time of healing, but there is only terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant. You could say promise with us and do not break it. Jeremiah says, God, remember your promise. You promised Abraham and Moses that you would be our God and we would be your people. Remember that and don't destroy us. 
Do you know that every week when I get up here, I get butterflies in my stomach? One of the reasons I can tell I'm nervous is just before I'm supposed to come up here, I start to... <clears throat> it's just stress. You know, I wonder, do I have anything to say? Will I give you anything that will help you? I wonder if I can hold the attention of a, of a middle schooler or a high schooler. I mean, I know that every one of you was brought up on a remote control. If you're watching something and don't like it, just a flick of your finger, you can change the channel. I mean, think about it. Every producer has a $2 million budget for a one-hour episode. They have these writers and actors and designers. And, you know, maybe eight weeks to prepare one episode. So I'm thinking, what do I have to offer people? The only thing that keeps me going are God's promises. God says, as rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God says, Ron, you can preach my word. It will not return void. It will work in the life of every person who hears you. I say, all right, God, you promised it. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to believe your promise. I know when people listen, they need hope. Some of you are hurting in your marriage. Some of you are, are struggling with a son or a daughter. Some of you are having trouble with your parent. Some of you are hurting financially. Some of you are out of work and don't know what to do. What do I have to give you? God, you promised in your word that you would give people hope. So I'll speak with confidence. To retain hope in uncertain times, we must put our hope for ourselves and our country in God's promises. There's a third way we can give people hope. Put our hope in God's sovereign power. One of the most famous passages of Jeremiah is Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. If you're one that likes to underline in your Bible, these would be worthy. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom. You know, we tend to want to boast in our, uh, you know, the, the degrees we've earned or how many books we've written. He says, don't do that. Or the strong boast of their strength. We want to boast how strong we are, how, how much we work out. He says, don't do that. Or the rich boast of their riches. If you've been blessed financially, you want to boast in that. God says, don't do that. But let the one who boasts, boast about this. That they understand and know me. 
that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, judgment, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. We find our hope by knowing God. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing, Jeremiah says, is too hard for you. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? When we are uncertain, we need to remember that God is sovereign. I do not know what's going to happen in the next couple months, but I do know that God is sovereign. He is in control over the pandemic, the economic shutdown, the social unrest and riots, the wildfires, and the election. So let's go back to Stuart Hall. When the doctors didn't know what to do for Stuart, at that point, one of the doctors says, I want to try giving you a plasma exchange. Kelly told him to go for it. Within the next 24 hours, he made a remarkable recovery. By April 25th, he was sitting up in a chair. On the 27th of April, he came out of his room for the first time. A week later, on May 2nd, Stuart went home to his family. Kelly said the turning point was one morning... At sunrise, she sat on her porch, and he was at that point in a medically induced coma. She didn't know what was going to happen to him. She said, God, I don't want to lose him, but if you want to take him, you can do that, because I don't put my hope in my prayer and you answering what I ask for, but I put my hope in you. That's how you find hope. You put your hope in God. Not in Him answering your prayers the way you present them, but in Him. People today are looking for hope. We can help them find hope by urging them to put their hope in God's name, put their hope in God's promises and put their hope in God's sovereign power. And you can put your hope in God right now as we pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do give us hope even in the midst of just crazy world. And we just we just we don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead. We put our hope in you for ourselves personally and what we're dealing with and what our country's dealing with and even our world is dealing with. We turn to you. I want you to pray right now. Maybe you've kind of lost hope recently. Would you tell God that you believe in his sovereign power, you believe in his promises, and you're going to put your hope in him and his name If you've never given your life to Christ, you tell him right now, I want you in my life. 
I believe you died and rose again for me. Forgive my sins and come into my life. You pray right now. Father, thank you for being a God of hope. You are all powerful. Nothing's too hard for you. And so we put our hope in you for our own lives, things we're going through, and for our country. You are our only hope. Thank you. In Jesus' name.